Ephesians chapter number 3, and I'd like to read from verse 14 down to verse number 19. Ephesians chapter number 3, verse number 14, Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this time. Pray you'd take your holy inspired word, wield it as a sword, Father, that it might do a work, a piercing work, a dividing, a separating work in our hearts, that we might... Lord, the things that would, would pull us away from Christ might be purged from us, and that the things that would draw us closer unto Thee would be encouraged and would be emboldened in us. Lord, we love You. We ask You to do all these things for the glory of God and for the name of Christ. We ask it. Amen. Paul makes a statement in verse number 14 that I find very, very fascinating. And it's fascinating, not because I believe it to be a rare occurrence in Paul's life, but because he so explicitly declares it. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Then notice this, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, Paul is no stranger to prayer. All throughout the Pauline epistles, you'll find uh, his prayers pinned down and, and various truths concerning prayer. There's no question he was a man of prayer. And uh, there are probably many things that caused him to bow his knee before the God of glory and to seek God's intervention in things. But I find it interesting that he expresses it in this way, that there is something that has literally driven him to his knees that he might seek the Lord's favor and grace and help. What's more astounding to me is that none of the things that he mentions over the next few verses have anything to do with him. Paul is describing things that he sees going on in other people's lives, needs that they have, deficits that they are sensing and experiencing. And he says, these are the things that drive me to my knees in prayer. We could describe this as intercessory prayer. Paul says, I'm looking around me, I'm looking around at the world, I'm looking around at what's going on in the lives of believers, things that they're facing, things that they're experiencing, and it literally drives me to my knees that I might seek the Lord's help on their behalf. I wonder tonight how often you pray for others. I hope you pray for others quite often. I hope you pray for me quite often. If you don't pray for nobody else, you ought to pray for me. Somebody say amen to that. I hope you pray for me. I hope on my behalf you seek the Lord's favor. But I hope this matter of intercessory prayer is not something that is only rare and only occasional for you. I hope that you are consistently praying to God for the sake of others. Over and over again in the Bible, you'll find scriptural precedent for this truth, for this idea. Uh, This certainly is not an attempt to short-circuit or to work around another person's autonomy or their will, but it is a firm belief that prayer changes things, and that includes people. 
So Paul, by virtue of these statements, I want to give you a few simple thoughts. I want you to notice, first off as a little introduction, that what Paul says in verses 14 and 15 exhibit a threefold confidence that he has concerning prayer. Look at verse number 14. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in this passage is that Paul exhibits a great confidence in heartfelt prayer. Now, Paul had a lot of friends across the globe. He was not a wealthy man by any stretch, not at least by the metrics uh, that the world measures uh, wealth and, and power and influence by. But Paul was a man that if he needed to, he could gain help in probably just about every city in, uh, in, in the land of Israel, in the Mediterranean basin there. Uh, he could have probably done a lot of things to help the Ephesian believers. He had spent years laboring, three years laboring uh, with tears and uh, with prayers among them, and his heart was knit with these people. And when he saw them struggling in some things, he could have sent a lot of people, he could have gone himself, he could have probably rallied together a lot of God's people uh, to come to the aid of the Ephesian believers. But instead, he says, when I see these things, the first thing it causes me to do is to pray. This tells me, very simply, that Paul believed in prayer. I know that's a simple thought. I know it's probably not the first time that thought has ever occurred to you. But I I would posit this and and risk this, that uh, very often in life, though we understand, have a head knowledge and apprehension of the power of prayer, uh, often it does not match up with with how frequently we uh, avail ourselves of prayer. We may believe that prayer works if uh, we're put to the question, if we're asked that. But are we exhibiting that in the fact that we're praying for other people? Listen, some of y'all have come in here tonight and your heart's burdened. And you've got people that you love, that you care about, that uh, you're seeing things transpire in their life that give you cause to worry. There might be some things in your own life that you need the Lord's intervention about. You've come to a prayer meeting tonight. You've given prayer requests this evening. Uh, That's pretty good evidence you believe in prayer. But the greatest evidence that you believe in prayer is whether or not you'll pray about these things. I'll tell you this. Listen, it's a great help to give prayer requests. It's a lot better thing to pray. And I hope that what we do on these Wednesday evenings is never just an exercise in complaining. It's never dawned on you that if you if you give a prayer request and don't back it up with praying, you ain't done nothing more than complain. Now listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't feel a a willingness and a liberty to share our burdens one with another. Certainly we should. But if we really are burdened over these things, it ought to drive us like it did Paul to our knees to pray. He said, there's some things that are causing me to pray. Not just praying because that's what you do. I'm praying because it's the only way to get anything done. He says, this is why I I'm going to the Lord. He exhibits confidence in heartfelt prayer. Notice the end of this verse. He says, For this cause I bow my knees unto who? Unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's always interesting and instructive to notice exactly how the Holy Ghost says things. Because, I, and I try to make a practice of this. When I, when I find something that strikes me as maybe a little peculiar in the way that it's worded in Scripture, I always ask myself, how else could you have said that? Not because I think the Holy Ghost said it wrong, but because I think He said it right. 
And because if you think about all the ways Paul could have expressed what he said there, then it will give a vivid relief and and exhibit to you why the Holy Ghost said it exactly how he said it. He could have said, for this cause, I bow my knees unto God. That would have been true. He could have said, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Heavenly Father. And he could have left it there. And that would have been correct. But instead, he shows this eternal relationship between father and son. Say, preacher, why would he do that? Well, because our prayer life hinges on this eternal relationship between father and son. I believe what Paul was exhibiting was confidence in heartfelt prayer, but I believe he was also exhibiting confidence in his high priest. He was saying, when I pray and talk to the father, I'm doing so through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though there might not be any, any comprehensible reason why thrice holy God would ever hear the prayers of me, I know that He will hear His own Son. And because I stand justified in Christ and because He uh, He officiates as my high priest, and when I seek the Lord's help, I'm seeking that help not alone, but aided by the perfect righteousness and wisdom of Christ. I can trust that God hears my prayers. He shows confidence in the high priest. In verse 15, he says this, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, the commentators sort of uh, debate about who this is talking about. So depending on how you read it, that could be talking about the Father, could be talking about the Son, and I think that's just how the Holy Ghost wants it. Because the reality is, listen, it's all, uh, the, the entire divine plan and agenda of God is that all authority might be delivered up to the Son, and when He's destroyed every enemy, when He's put down every insurrectionist, when His reign is supreme and complete, then He's going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father, that all may be in one. See, really it doesn't matter whether it's talking about the Father or talking about the Son. Instead, the relationship that's spoken of between creation and creator is what is so important. You see, he says the whole family. What family? Well, the family of God. The whole family in heaven and in earth is named in the Father or the Son. really makes no difference. But it tells us this, that there is a familial relationship between us as prayers and the God that hears our prayers. He's exhibiting a confidence in heavenly providence that it is God's responsibility to take careful, faithful watch care over his family. He's the patriarch. I know that's a word we're all supposed to hate nowadays. But God the Father is the heavenly spiritual patriarch. And it's his responsibility to see to the needs of his family. And he never fails. So Paul says, in light of this, that I believe in prayer, that prayer is effective because of Jesus Christ, and that God is inclined to answer prayer because we are His own and not our own. In light of those things, I pray. And he asked God for five things to be present in the life of the Ephesian believers. And I want to run through them very quickly with you this evening. Look at verse 16. The first thing he asked for is this. He says that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Let me say the first thing He asked God to do for these Ephesian believers is that they be divinely strengthened for the task that's at hand. This is matches up closely with Paul's sentiment whenever he left 
uh, Ephesus. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He had, as we said, spent three years laboring night and day with tears, with prayers amongst these people. And there seemed to be, uh, just for whatever reason, a particularly close connection between Paul and the Ephesian church. No other churches, it recorded that when Paul left them, they followed him to the shore side and wept as he uh, boarded the ship. No other churches, it recorded that when Paul knew it was the last time he'd see them, that he spent several moments exhorting them and charging them to be cautious, that wolves in sheep's clothing would come in, try to uh, lay waste and make prey of the flock. But Paul, when he left the Ephesian church, it's evident that he left a piece of his heart back at Ephesus. And he, for many years, probably the rest of his life, would worry, would think about that little group of believers and the things they were facing and the struggles they were experiencing. And so he asked God that he would give them a supernatural strength that they would be able to stand against the wiles of the devils, of the devil, and that they would be able to stand in righteousness. You know, when we pray for one another, one of the things we ought to ask God to do is to strengthen each other for whatever task the will of God brings into the purview of our day. Uh, you know, the will of God is a manifold thing. Paul talks about that, uh, the manifold will of God. And God's always doing many things at one time. Uh, every single day, our day is chock full, whether we're aware of it or not, with responsibilities, with choices, with direction, and it's up to us to walk in obedience to the Spirit of God that we might see God's will exercised and exhibited and experienced in our life. Paul, being aware of this and knowing that oftentimes it's not easy to do the will of God, he prays and asks the Lord to give them the strength they need. Once you notice what sort of strength it is, he says that he would strengthen the inner man. Spiritual strength is not always uh, accompanied by physical strength or emotional strength, or mental strength. Now listen, it's wonderful when it is. And certainly God is not limited in being able to energize His people and empower and enable them. But Paul had learned long ago that oftentimes physical weakness, emotional weakness, mental weakness would be the very avenue through which God would be able to impart spiritual strength. So he doesn't ask that God would make their way easy. He doesn't ask that their road would be without potholes. He doesn't ask that the wheels would stay on their car. But instead he asks them to give them the inner, the spiritual strength they need for when the wheels fall off. For whatever may come, whatever the day may hold, whatever it may be, not that they not experience trouble, not that they not have needs, but merely that God give them the grace and the faith and the strength they need to meet those needs, to face those obstacles in a way that honors Christ. We like for God to fix our problems. We like for Him to give us strength. We like for Him to direct our way in a comfortable and in an informative manner. And sometimes He does that. But the fact is, you can have all of those things, but without the spiritual strength of God, you won't be equipped for them. The converse side of it, if you've got the spiritual strength, the strength that comes only from God, then you don't have to have all that figured out. God will lead you, He'll guide you, He'll uphold you. We see what sword it is. It's not strength of the outer man, it's strength of the inner man. But notice not only the sword of the strength, but notice the source of the strength. Where does it come from? He says that He would, with might by His Spirit, strengthen them in the inner man. I like the usage of that word might there. It's the word dunamis. And every time it's used in the New Testament, 
It always deals with supernatural divine power. Not, not something sourced in this world, but something that's of heavenly origin. Oftentimes, in fact, it's associated with miracles. The miracle working power of God. And that's what Paul's asking, that God would work a miracle inside their hearts. That their strength would not merely be physical or emotional or mental, but that it would be spiritual strength that in many ways defies the absence of strength in those other areas. Where does it come from? He says it comes from his spirit. From his spirit. That tells me this, if we want to access this strength, we can only access it by obeying his spirit. Let me tell you something, oftentimes the strength of God looks and feels like weakness to us. But it, it listen, it stands the test. It, it bears, it survives. We may feel as though we're at our end. But oftentimes, you'd be amazed how long God by His strength can uphold you while you're at your end. Sometimes He's got to get you to that place before He can really start upholding you. You say, well, how do I do that, preacher? Put it in shoe leather. How do I do that? You do that by obeying the leading of God's Spirit. As He, through the Word of God, through the preaching of the Word of God, through your prayer life, as He instructs you and guides you, you merely take the next step, trusting that He will both illuminate and empower you for the following step. We get so far ahead of ourselves. We get so focused on the finish line that we quit looking at the next step we take, and then we trip. If we'll just focus on the next thing, and the next thing is to obey God as He directs us and guides us. In doing so, we'll experience this strength. Look at verse 17. He says this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. First thing you ask God to do for them is that they be divinely strengthened. The second is that they be devoted to the Savior. He said, I desire for you that you'd love Christ. That he would dwell in your hearts by faith. I find this to be such fascinating language. And here's why. Because we have co-opted this language to be synonymous with a person being born again. Now, I have no qualm with that. I've said many times that I receive Christ into my heart as my Savior. In fact, just a few days ago on December 1st, uh, my odometer rolled 21. 21 years uh, since I received Christ as my Savior. And in those years, I have many times said that I received Jesus into my heart. My little boy is to an age, and you pray for him, and you pray for his mama and me. God give us wisdom, and that the Spirit of God would lead and guide us, because he's starting to ask a lot of questions. Uh, he woke me up the other day, real early. He said, Daddy, I want to know about going to heaven. I said, I, I can't have this conversation right now. Go in there and play. I'm going to sleep. Amen. But he's starting to ask questions. Oh, you ain't so spiritual. I don't care. He's starting to ask questions. He's starting to seek the Lord's mind. And, and I have no qualm with saying you receive Jesus into your heart. But really, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. We don't receive Jesus into our heart, as it were. Again, I have no problem with the verbiage. But Paul says he's praying for the Ephesian believers. Now, it's evident. If you read through what he said already in this epistle, that the Ephesian believers were in fact believers. They were justified. They were saved, sanctified, sealed under the day of redemption. Children of God in the family of God. And yet he prays that they be, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. Why does he pray that if Christ being in your heart is synonymous with being born again? Make no sense. 
Well, in fact, there's a lot of believers that Christ is their Savior, but in a pragmatic, practical, effectual way, Christ doesn't dwell in their heart. Their heart doesn't belong to the Lord the way that it ought to. Uh, Their life doesn't belong to the Lord the way that it ought to. You see, the heart is a place of two things. Number one, the heart is a place of affection. When we talk about somebody being in our heart, what we're saying is we love them. And I think that's a scriptural definition, understanding, because the Bible over and over again illustrates the heart as being the seat of our emotions, representative of what drives us and what we love and what we care about and what's meaningful to us. And Christ, uh, Paul says Christ ought to be the one that dwells in that place. He's praying that they'd love the Lord, that their affection would be set on heavenly things and on the heavenly Son of God. You ought to pray for one another. You ought to pray for your kids that they'll grow up to love the Lord. If your kids are grown up, you ought to pray for them to love the Lord. You ought to pray for your spouse to love the Lord. You ought to pray for yourself to love the Lord. He ought to be our everything. Until He's our everything, everything ain't going to be right. Because He's the only one that's always right. But if we can make Him our everything, if we can set our affection on that, doesn't matter what home we have, what car we have, what clothes we have, what job we have, those things touch and affect life, and we all have opinions and preferences. But if you can truly become contented with Christ, then you've won the great victory over this world's materialism. Godliness with contentment, Paul said, that's great gain. Great gain. Great gain. The heart is the place of affection, but it's also a place of authority. You know why? Because what what you love will be what leads you. What you love, I'm going to say that again, will be what leads you. If you give your heart to something, then you've given your everything to something. We can't love something and not be led by it. One of these days, some of y'all just staring at me. That either means you don't get it or you get it all too well. Listen, we love our children, don't we? That's why the devil's after our children the way he is. He knows if he can get them, he's got us. We were talking in Sunday school about Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever he sacked or laid siege to Jerusalem and the siege got cut short because his father had fell ill, Instead of destroying the city, you know what he did? He took all the seed royal of Judah and took them back to Babylon. You know why? Because he knew he didn't have to have the city if he had their kids. You know why that is? Because what we love is what leads us. That's where our heart is. The fact is, until our affection is set on Christ, our authority will not be vested in Christ. But once we love Him, once we're in love with Him, then he can exercise real authority in our lives. Does he have the authority in your life? Answer it honestly. Not not verbally, vocally, but answer it honestly. Is he calling the shots? Is he guiding? Is he directing? If he's not, then he's not dwelling in your heart by faith. But if he is, then it can only be because he's dwelling in your heart by faith. I see that the heart is a place of affection and a place of authority. He prays that they be devoted to the Savior. Look at the end of verse number 18. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. find that to be interesting language. The previous point is deeply connected to that. 
In other words, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith will produce these two conditions. And what he's asking God to do for the Ephesian believers is that they not only be divinely strengthened and devoted to the Savior, but that they be deeply settled, spiritually speaking. There are a lot of people that are tossed about with every wind and slate of doctrine. They're chasing after everything. I finally, I think, figured out a lot about this world. I was thinking about it the other day. When you try to define... Well, I'll tell you where it all came from. You ready? I was I read some article where some guy had decided that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman and a number of other Christmas movies and songs and this and that were were part of the racist patriarchy that was destroying the fabric of our culture. Man, I'm glad they finally figured out what's broken about this world. Now if we can get Rudolph and Frosty off of there, everything should just clear right out. And it dawned on me, why do people write such stupidity? Nobody's sitting around thinking that's correct. If they are, they ought to be in a white coat and a padded room. Nobody thinks that's correct, and yet there's an audience for it. You know why? Because we live in a world of Epicureans and Stoics that just sit around wanting to hear some new thing. And if somebody can come out with some kind of mindless drivel and claim victimhood and claim offense, there'll be somebody that'll say, let's give it a listen. A lot of Christians are that way too. Listen, that they'd, they'd read any new book that comes out before they'd read the Bible. There's a lot of pastors would try any new technique before they'd try soul winning and prayer and preaching. Because it's all about some new thing. Now, I'm not against everything that's new. I prefer my produce fresh. Amen? I, I, I prefer my clothes, my car new. If I can get them that way, I usually can't. But I'm not against something being new. But I'm against something being the goodness of it being vested in its newness. There are a lot of new things that ain't the way they used to be. If I wanted to quit preaching, we'd just all sit around and complain about how things were better in the old days right now, but I, I do want to finish the message. But suffice it to say that newness does not denote goodness, but that's how the world operates. It's how they think. If it's new, it must be better. And so Christians even are, are tossed about with every wind and slate of dark. Every time somebody comes out with some kind of trendy book where they've figured out the, you know, the, whatever they are, the, the, the shack or the mystery or the question or the secret or whatever it is, people run to it. They flock to it. They say, Oh, this is the greatest thing that we've ever seen. And half of them don't even understand what they're reading because it's just some new thing. It's some new thing. Paul said, I'm not praying for you to be given some new thing. I'm praying for you to be rooted and grounded, deeply settled in the truth of God's Word. Greatest thing you can do for your home is get in your Bible and read it and find out what God says and settle down on it and believe it and obey it and let it guide your family. Greatest thing you can do in your walk with Christ is not run after the next new book to fly off the shelves, but go back to the old book. And to read it and believe it and obey it. He's praying that they be deeply settled. If Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, it'll do two things. One, it'll inform our beliefs. He says, I want you to be rooted. 
If a plant is rooted in something, it's deriving its nutrient from the soil that it was planted in. And that's what Christians ought to be doing. The same way that Paul had told the uh, Colossian believers that as they had received Jesus Christ, they should walk in Him rooted and grounded in the faith. In other words, they didn't need some new thing. They needed to double down in the truth that they were birthed out of. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of the word of God, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the absolute veracity of God's truth and promise. They didn't need something new. They needed to root down in what they had derived their life from. I'd ask you like Paul asked the Galatian believers, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the works of the law? How did you start this thing? You started it by believing in Christ, by faith, responding to the gospel as it was preached to you. Why would you think that you need to move on to something different? It says you need to be rooted. It will inform our beliefs. Number two, it will inform our behavior. It will instruct our behavior. He says you need to be grounded. Grounded. When we think of something being grounded, we think of it not moving. Not physically, tangibly moving. Something can be rooted but it can be picked up and moved. Some of you all have pots of plants and who knows what else. They're legalizing everything today. I don't want to know what you're growing on your back porch, but all sorts of things. And you can pick that whole potted plant up and move it, but if it's grounded, it can't go anywhere. I don't want to retread the same ground or replow the same field, but I'll just simply say this, that our behavior, if it was right 20 years ago, if it was right 50 years ago. Now, there's a lot of stuff that 50 years ago was preached as right that wasn't right. But if what was preached 50 years ago as right was right because it was rooted in the truth of the Word of God, then it's still right today. And our beliefs and our behavior should be both rooted and grounded. Let me give you a fourth thing. He prays that they be, verse 18, diligently schooled in the love of Christ. He says that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. He wants them to be educated. But not just educated in anything. Educated in what matters the most. Now I'd remind you that Paul was an educated man. He had grown up under what was inarguably the best instruction a person growing up in Tarsus could have received, and in Jerusalem. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was learned in letters. He was a brilliant man. But he says, at the end of the day, it is not those things that matter. In fact, he says that knowledge puffeth up. Now, wisdom is a whole different thing than knowledge. But knowledge without wisdom, in other words, having a bunch of facts in your head, but not having the Spirit of God to guide and direct and apply those facts, that puffs up. Paul was an educated man. He's not against education. But he notes that there are some topics that matter more than others. We live in a day where kids make a career out of going to school. And I'm not against kids going to school. If you want my opinion, society's too dumb. We need more education, not less education. Right? You Listen, you'll start amening that next time you're driving down the road behind somebody that don't even know how a blinker works or a yield sign. So don't get all spiritual on me on a Wednesday night prayer meeting. We do need more education. But there are some topics more relevant than others. There are kids that go and spend five, six, seven, eight years in school and come out with some kind of obscure dance theory uh, 
degree and then go out into a workplace and whine and complain that they can't find a job. Well, maybe if you went and did something that anybody, anybody could use, you'd have a job in that field. Education's not bad in and of itself, but there's some topics more important than others. There are some things you go to school for, and there's always going to be a need. Let me tell you something. You want my advice? I know that's why you came tonight. You're looking for a career? Go into air conditioning. People's always going to be fat. Right? Everybody's always going to want air conditioning. Go, listen, go into, go into electrical. People's always going to want their air conditioner and their TV and all that stuff. There are certain topics more meaningful than others. Paul says, if I could have you learn one topic, I'd have you learn of the love of Christ. He said, if I had my way, I'd have you learn of its breadth, how wide it is. I'm glad the love of Christ is wide and not narrow. I'm glad the truth of the word of God is narrow, but the love of Christ is not narrow. He loves each and every person. I'm glad for the length of the love of God. Because if the love of God and the love of Christ wasn't so long-reaching, I might have outrun it. But I couldn't outrun it. I'm glad for its depth, because it can reach down to the lowest of the low. And I'm glad for its height, because it can lift us out of that miry clay and set our feet on a solid rock and establish our goings. He says, I want you to know the love of Christ. If you can't know anything else, know the love of Christ. Then I find something interesting here. Notice not only the topic, notice the term. Every school has a term, right? They go from such and such a time to such and such a time. I don't really remember when our winter break, we didn't call it winter break, we called it Christmas break. I grew up in Christian school, but I don't really remember when Christmas break started, but I was looking on the calendar this year because we were we were doing some uh, planning and, and for some various activities, and kids don't get out of school in Knox County till December 21st. Man, that seems crazy to me. That ain't no kind of break. Listen, you ought to pray extra hard for our kids because they're in that cesspool for a lot longer than you were when you was growing up. You only went to school like four days when you was growing up. Now they start their term in late June and it goes until late May or something. Every school has a term. They have a, a period of time. And I find it interesting what Paul says here. Notice it again that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what it's the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Then notice what he says, which passeth knowledge. He says, I'm praying that you'll know the love of Christ, but the love of Christ passeth knowledge. Could we maybe say that Paul was praying here for something that could never be answered? I think what we're getting at here is that the school term in learning and knowing the love of Christ, it never ends. Even if you know, listen, however much you know of the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and of the nature of the love of Christ today, there will always be something new to learn about it. You're never going to get out of the school of the knowledge of the love of Christ. He says one final thing, and I'll mention this and be done. He prays that the Ephesian believers would be duly saturated with God himself. Look at what it says in verse number 19. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. More interesting language. 
filled with all the fullness of God. And I thought about what it means to be filled with something. For something to be filled, it has to first be emptied. It cannot be full of one thing if there's even a molecule of something else in it. If it is, then it's not filled with that singular thing. He says, I'm praying that you be filled with all the fullness of God. That tells me there's some things that have to be expelled and expunged from our life. In other words, God has to empty us before He can fill us. All the things that might vie for the authority of Christ, all the things that might contend against the love of Christ, those things, if we're going to be filled with the fullness of God, have to be purged from us. It's not a comfortable thing, but sometimes... In our life, there's a purging process that God is doing. Sometimes He's taking things away that draw us from Christ. And a lot of times we don't want to see those things go because our flesh has grown to love them. But we can rest in this, that God never takes anything from us that we need. And He never gives anything to us that will hurt us. There's some things He has to take from us. He mentions what we expel. Then He mentions what we exude. He says the fullness of God. I found this word several times in the Bible, but the most interesting was in John chapter number 1. Can I read four verses to you? That'd be all right. You got time for that? Verse number 14 of John chapter 1. John's talking about Christ, the incarnate word. And he says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Then John says this, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's the fullness that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3.19. The fullness of God is the grace of God. And the grace of God was manifest by the Son of God. By Moses came the law. That's how we learned what law looks like. Moses went up on Sinai and God gave him tablets. But the way that we know what grace looks like is that God came down from heaven and tabernacled among us and went to the cross of Calvary. The grace of God looks like Jesus Christ. That's the fullness of God. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Paul said to the Colossian church. So in other words, to be filled with the fullness of God is to be filled with Christ and nothing else. I'll share this with you. I know you've heard it a hundred times. That once it was asked of Michelangelo how he carved the sculpture of David. And he replied that he got a big piece of granite. And then he envisioned what David's sculpture would look like. And he said very simply, I just took away everything that wasn't David. That's what God's doing in your life and mine. Those things he's taken away that are being expelled and expunged and purged from our life, those are things that don't look like Jesus Christ. What's he leaving, preacher? He's leaving the things that look like Jesus Christ. He's leaving the fullness of God. Preacher, how can I be filled with the fullness of God? Don't fight Him when He takes things that you don't need and receive the things that He 
gives to you because you do need them. And try to live your life by obeying the Spirit of God and by exhibiting the character of Christ.